Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with a pocket full of files that will lead us from the early days of Chinese animation to the bird life of Essex, and before that, and indeed right now, to the problem of mapping clouds with Forensic Architecture's A.L. Weitzman. Forensic Architecture is a research agency operating at Goldsmiths in London, but spreading out into the art world, even being nominated for the Turner Prize. Their work involves gathering, interpreting and presenting information found in everything from mobile phone videos to historical maps in order to track and challenge state violence. Recently, the scope of their investigations has broadened. There's now an offshoot called Forensic Oceanography and their most recent show, Cloud Studies, currently at Visual Carlo, looks at the violence that comes in the air through gas weapons but also through industrial poisoning. The group's founder and leader, A.L. Weissman spoke to Culturefile about the politics of clouds. When we began, we thought of forensic architecture very much like an archaeological project. You know, archaeologists look at buildings, at remnants, and try to reconstruct what has taken place. We were looking at the archaeology of stuff that happened yesterday. We were looking at buildings that were just destroyed by drone strikes or artillery or bombs, studying things in Gaza and in, in the West Bank, in Pakistan, Afghanistan frontier, uh, in many other places, Syria, where, um, you know, the, the way that buildings were destroyed, the kind of traces left on the architecture, allowed us to reconstruct something of what has taken place. Gradually, we realized that architectural models can do actually something else that later became much more powerful. And that is becoming a way of looking at media. Think about an incident that happened anywhere uh, in a city or in, an, in a, in a built-up area. You have today upwards of uh, several dozens videos, user-generated videos, um, you know, the material that people would take on their smartphone, of the same incident from multiple perspectives. The way to understand the relation between them is to put them within an architectural model. Every video is then placed within a, a sort of like a simulated architectural representation. And we can move from one video to the next and see what is the relation between the partial perspectives uh, of each video and reconstruct an entire story. I guess we fell upon that technique very much at the time that uh, what we call now open source investigation became more popular uh, with the rise of social media when so much information is out in a public domain and just need to be seen and composed into a case. Those incidents were mainly incidents of kinetic energy, bombing, but also police violence uh, cases uh, in the US, in the UK. We've done a big case on uh, the police killing of Mark Duggan and you know, of police killings uh, all around the world. These are incidents of physical violence and kinetic uh, events in a sense of you know projectiles flying around and we need to see where they come from and what is the the context of each one. Gradually, we started seeing another type of violence, another type of state violence, and that is the kind of making toxic of the air we breathe. And that put a big challenge uh, to forensic architecture because forensics is usually a question of trace. It is, it is dealing with hard surfaces on which traces are inscribed. But 
mapping out clouds, and by saying clouds, I mean anything that the kind of state throws at, at civilians, really, from tear gas to chemical strikes to airborne herbicide, as we've mapped in Gaza, to forest fires on a much bigger scale, or almost continental scale, when we map it in the Amazon or in, uh, or in Indonesia, representing those clouds as a form of attack is a challenge to forensics. Clouds are, are not regular objects in a sense that you can kind of fix them in space and see how traces inscribed in them. We needed to really go uh, somewhere very different in order to understand how to deal with that form of violence. And I guess cloud studies is engaging that problem, the problem of, of mapping clouds. One of the things about the research group is that you bring in a lot of people from different professions with different kind of uh, skills. And I guess suddenly here you need chemists and uh, environmental scientists in a new way. Or were these people always involved in, in what you were doing? Right now, we have many more commissions that we can possibly take, and we choose them very carefully. But one thing I, I have to tell you, we, we don't take cases that we know in advance how to resolve because, uh, you know, being a university-based research agency, we need to develop and disseminate new, new kinds of information. So every project requires different sort of uh, collaborative um, matrix, let's say. Some project requires a lot of lawyers, uh, some requires environmental scientists like, you know, those on the clouds. Other projects uh, require different kind of expertise, if we are doing a case, as we have done uh, on uh, the protest in Chile and the absolutely horrendous uh, Chilean police repression of that protest using, you know, an unbelievable quantities of tear gas, we had to do two things. We had to find almost every tear gas cloud, every canister that uh, was, you know, sort of... Uh, disseminating gas uh, within within a particular square we were looking at. We had to train algorithms to identify them uh, by automatically scanning through videos. So we had a location of every tear gas canister that was uh, disseminating around that, uh, uh, disseminating cloud around the square. And then we were working with... Um, uh, sort of computer-simulated environmental modeling uh, to actually give shape to an invisible cloud, a cloud that could not be caught by the eyes. Of course, when a tear gas uh, releases its gas, you can see at the very few first few seconds, you see a gray, small cloud um, around the place where it, it releases, uh, but those later collect into a much bigger cloud. All, you know, hundreds of, of tear gas canisters collect into a bigger cloud that start moving in a very uh, strange way, uh, always in response to the weather, to the temperature, uh, but also to the architecture. And then you need to move to a mathematic simulation. And, and this is where you need scientists to actually give you the shape of that invisible cloud that really affects uh, the health of people in, in, in different 
places. In that case in Chile with the use of tear gas, you are almost in familiar territory because you're talking about weapons. But when you go to work with Rise St. James in Louisiana, it's quite a different uh, character of investigation. Well, whenever we look at sort of planning policies to do with polluting uh, factories and those that are built along the Mississippi are... Um, the most polluting kinds of factories that that you can imagine. These are plastic factories, petrochemical factories that are being built along a stretch of the Mississippi that was called plantation country, uh, where a lot of enslaved people uh, lived and died in horrible conditions, uh, working in sugarcane plantations. Some of those communities... Uh, after the abolishment of slavery, uh, remained in place. And these communities are now subjected uh, to the most polluting air uh, in the U.S., uh, with the highest sort of percentage of cancer per capita uh, in the U.S. So I think that there is um, a continuation of violence here uh, that we must take into account. Uh, so for the first time, we have mapped all you know, polluting substances that come out of the chimneys of these factories, simulated their um, fluid dynamics in order to see and to show mainly um, to the court that is uh, now, uh, there are several cases of, new, of more factories pending further permission uh, from um, the authorities there. Um, and we have joined local communities trying to stop those factories being built. And the court needed to see exactly the effects of that invisible killer, uh, the air, uh, to show that the air has shape, uh, that those um, polluting substances actually with you know where they are located and considering the wind disproportionately affect uh, black communities there descendants of uh, enslaved people uh, and that is nothing but we cannot call it any way differently than environmental racism uh, so I think that we need to see that things that appear mundane and appear uh, to be simply a kind of a byproduct of industrialization can also have violent history uh, and could be subject to, to, to really a gross form of racism. What's absolutely fascinating about that study is the sort of the, the historical aspect that it seems almost there is a policy of erasure, but to understand the kind of history of land use is to understand current uh, levels or current attitudes towards pollution and mortality. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that, you know, during the period of uh, extreme of high enslavement in this area, 18th and 19th century, when uh, those plant- sugarcane plantations were uh, actually constructed, where enormous amount of wealth was produced based on the exploitation uh, of uh, unpaid and coerced uh, labor, um, rape, murder, 
uh, of um, racialized people, we were talking about the land we were looking for and finding uh, mass graves of enslaved people, uh, always almost like people were thrown into holes at the back of uh, plantation areas, uh, literally fertilizing the ground. And enslavement and that form of violence was very connected to the land. Today, I think, that form of racism is in the air, uh, in the sort of, you know, unequal distribution of healthy air. And I think that, you know, our right to breathe, as uh, philosopher Ashil Mbembe put it, is a universal right, uh, breath. Uh, and we see that that right to breathe is, is again, unequally distributed. The uh, black majority towns of, the, of that part of the Mississippi River uh, where people were uh, taken there, were, uh, you know, under extreme violence, um, you know, we're, we're, we're toiling under extreme violence in those uh, plantations. These are the very people we still exercise violence for profit for, because those, um, the, there's very little of the money that uh, is generated in those parts uh, from very profitable international consortiums of uh, plastic production that stays there. So again, you know, there is a sort of profit that is done at the expense and through violence uh, to the uh, same black communities that were brought there uh, as enslaved people. Is there, a, is there a compulsion at any stage to another development whereby you begin to feed plans, designs, uh, architecture back into the world? I was obviously trained as an architect uh, here in London at the Architectural Association. And I have, you know, I still have a sketchbook full of ideas. But I think sometimes I think that we architects think that every problem that the world is facing has a design solution to it. Uh, and I think that sometimes that kind of compulsion leads to a lot of the problems that we see. I think for us, it's more about pausing, using architecture as a kind of a framework to understand political and historical issues and to think about acts of repair that are not only, you know, existing within the domain of design, but uh, within the domain of effectively dismantling some of the uh, violent and polluting infrastructure that we've put together. And, and if that is designed, perhaps that, is, that, that, that's, that in itself is a blueprint for something uh, that is the extent to which we would, uh, we would take it. Forensic Architecture's Al Weitzman there in the exhibition Cloud Studies continues at Visual Carlo until February 6th. If you've ever clicked deep into the Netflix gubbins, you may have been surprised by the wonders hidden down there. One of the treats that's been bubbling on the info floor is Chinese animation, or Donghua, until recently nowhere near as famous as its brethren in the US or Japan. But films like White Snake and sequel Green Snake, now on Netflix, are part of a long and often interrupted Chinese tradition, as writer and superfan Shui Ting Christine Ni now explains. <laughs> 
a child living in China during the 1980s, I grew up with its animation classics from the 60s and 70s. These were often repeated on TV. But when it came to the new works, I stuck with anime and Western cartoons such as She-Ra, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Transformers. It wasn't until I'd emigrated to Europe and returned to study in Beijing in the late 2000s that I began to be impressed by new Chinese output. When you think about animation, China may not be the first place you think of. You might picture the charming works of Disney or the ultra-violence of Japanese anime, or perhaps the slapstick of Looney Tunes. But the history of Donghua, Chinese for animation, is long and full of beautiful works that are not as appreciated in the West as they could or should be. The story of Donghua does indeed begin in the tiny studio in 1920s Shanghai where three art students who taught themselves filmmaking techniques from Disney movies made their very first animation. The Wan brothers then went on to make Asia's first monochrome animation feature, Princess Iron Fan. Released in 1941, it depicts a famous episode in one of the greatest Chinese epics, Journey to the West, based on the real journey of the monk Xuanzang during the Tang Dynasty. You may know it as Monkey King or Monkey Magic, Although Monkey King in this animation bears a resemblance to Mickey Mouse, the film retains a uniqueness in motion and art style, based on traditional aesthetics. Cinema technology evolved, as did filmmaking, and as China became the People's Republic, and talent was brought into large state-run organizations, the iconic Shanghai Animation Studios was formed, and a golden age of Donghua was born. You may not have heard about the Wan Brothers' Uproar in Heaven, Asia's first animation feature in colour from 1961, but you might know one of its biggest fans, the medic-turned-animator, creator of Astro Boy, Osamu Tetsuka. It was these films that inspired his works, and in turn, generations of Japanese animators. Even long-running shows like Dragon Ball Z still borrows from Shanghai Animation Studios' frenetic energy, bright palette, and inspiration drawn from Journey to the West. Within China itself, much talent was lost through the political upheavals of the 70s, and the fame of Chinese animation seemed to die away. This did not mean that China simply stopped animating but all this talent was put into making public information films instead. Eventually, though, China realised its lost legacy, and the state began to publicly support and subsidise the development of the industry. There was an obvious period of catching up with substandard flash animations and poorly realized CGI flooding Chinese television as a generation of filmmakers struggled to regain the skills the industry had lost. By 2008, the year that all eyes were on Beijing for the Summer Olympics, the Donghua industry had begun a new age in the 21st century. Works like Chin's Moon combined gorgeous art and much improved CG animation with Wuxia, 
one of China's best-loved heroic traditions, showing that China had once again returned to the quality needed for the world stage. As the huge success of Over the Moon and 2019's absolutely stunning White Snake have proven again and again, based on one of the four greatest folk tales of China, the legend of White Snake has evolved within Chinese literature for over a millennium. Starting off as a cautionary tale and developing into a tragic love story, it's been the subject of multiple adaptations on stage and screen. This sequel on Netflix tells it from the perspective of Green Snake, a relatively recent addition to the legend. Retaining its Buddhist roots, it injects an alternative twist of diesel punk, a retro-futuristic fictional genre that draws aesthetically from diesel-based technology of the early 20th century. You can already tell that the studios have big plans to cross over multiple films and build their own mythological cinematic universe. Let's go. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want, 24 7 With China's huge cinema-going audience mad for animation, it wasn't going to be long before my tale went full circle as Disney tries to capitalize on the trend. Later this year, we will see Pixar release Turning Red, a story about a Chinese family who just happens to turn into red pandas when they get emotionally excited. Usually I'd cringe at a Western studio attempting to tell such a story. But with the Chinese-born director Domi Shu at the helm, we can only wait and see. Shweting Christine Ni on the history of Chinese animation, Pixar's Turning Red will be coming to cinemas in March, in principle. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, The Bird Life of Essex. For our Naturalist Bookshelf episodes, Paddy Woodworth has been assembling a shelf, could be two by now, of essential nature writing. To this point, groaning as the shelf is, he has not added a standard, some say the gold standard, nature book. J.A. Baker's 1967 The Peregrine. So this time, Paddy fixes that, even if, as he explains now... He had his reasons. Inflated expectations from superb reviews can ruin pleasure in a book. And perhaps, maybe, that is why I had, until now, held off reading J.A. Baker's The Peregrine, rated by so many nature lovers as both essential and unique, if not indeed sacred. But then I did begin to feel that this naturalist bookshelf was a little bare without it. However, I confess to another reason. I thought the central theme, a misanthropic loner on the featureless Essex coast, following wintering falcons so obsessively that he claims to have become half man, half hawk, was not only daunting, but distinctly dodgy. And this perhaps betrays some of my prejudices, because I have embraced Carlos Castaneda's account of a Native American shaman flying with ravens while high on peyote. I'm a devotee of Herman Hesse's half-lupine Steppenwolf, high on God knows what. But here I was, denying poetic license to an Englishman, high on fresh air. From the first few sentences of Baker's imaginatively reworked field notes, I realised how much I had been missing. 
The hardest thing of all, he writes at the outset, is to see what is really there. And he goes on to show us, no, not tell us, show us, what is really there in a way that no one had done before, nor, despite many imitators, has ever quite done again. Baker gives us the plumage, sounds and jizz of birds and animals with finely grained precision, coupled with an unsentimental, if often ecstatic, vision. Many of his paragraphs have the rich density of standalone prose poems, but his urgent daily hunger to find a peregrine drives the unlikely narrative forward relentlessly. Detailed descriptions of landscapes are tedious, Baker also writes early on, and he promptly proves himself quite wrong, even in Essex. But he is not describing here. He is painting with elegant strokes, often brief and direct, sometimes with an elaborate calligraphy. He reveals a dazzling spectrum of light on ploughed earth and flowing tides, on salt marsh, on hornbeams and elms, on hedgerow and on cloud banks. When this acute perception of the miracle of the everyday focuses on a particular bird or animal at a particular moment, the illumination is breathtaking. The subtlety with which he perceives and communicates variations in colour is uncanny, all the more so for a man who had very poor eyesight. The impression that this book is solely about peregrine falcons is misleading. The text is studded with glowing vignettes of many creatures. He conjures a nightjar's churring nocturnal song. Like the sound of a stream of wine spilling from a height into a deep and booming cask, it is an odorous sound with a bouquet that rises to the quiet sky. And if you've never heard a nightjar, you've surely seen a blackbird, but perhaps never as Baker sees it. Yellow-billed, staring with bulging crocus eye, like a small mad Puritan with a banana in its mouth. I had a recurrent sense of delighted, surprised recognition reading these passages. A sensation of, yes, that's it. And how did that never strike me before? And yes, the iconic peregrine falcon pulses through this fauna-rich landscape as a dramatic dominant par, scattering thousands of birds to kill just one, or play, yes play, with another. Baker observed hunting techniques that amaze even readers familiar with this hawk, and a minority of experts have indeed questioned his veracity. Equipped only with a bicycle and 1960s binoculars and telescope, Baker makes us intimate with the idiosyncratic daily behaviour of several individual falcons. Perhaps influenced by Ted Hughes, he makes plain the bloodiness of killing. But his accounts of the falcon's mastery of the air are much more joyful and celebratory than Hughes' poems. Nevertheless, Baker wrote under a triple shadow, not counting his own chronic ill health. When he published in 1967, the peregrine was on the verge of extinction in the UK so there is often an elegiac tone. A massive new airport was planned right beside his beat, and the global threat of nuclear warfare, while never mentioned directly, haunts the text. 
Happily, the peregrine's decline has since been reversed through the banning of the pesticide DDT and the airport project was shelved. But the coast Baker loved now faces climate challenges that the author could hardly have imagined. We learn nothing of Baker's jealously guarded personal life. His exceptional observational and literary skills pitch us headlong into his intense experience of wild creatures. But did he really, as he claims, develop some kind of mutual relationship with individual peregrines? By the last magical page, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. Paddy Woodworth there with another addition to the Naturalist Bookshelf. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more cross-species communion next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now. <laughs>